Today's reading is Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 20. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The word of the Lord. Uh, Let's pray as we begin. Our great God and Father, I thank you that you know us and that you love us and that you say things, even hard things, um, for our benefit. So as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would be inclining our hearts to you. Um, I pray you'd be opening our eyes uh, and I pray you'd be giving us hope. Amen. Okay, uh, honest reactions. I wonder how did you feel um, as we read that passage? I mean, look at verse, look at verse 11 for a moment. No one understands. Really? No one seeks God. Really? I mean, to be honest, as I read this passage in preparation, I found myself thinking, how can, how can that be true? Look at verse 12. No one does good, not even one. The passage really is saying no one. All people have turned away from God. Religious people, irreligious people, moral people, immoral people. No one, it is saying. Now, how can that be true? And if it is true, how can it be good news for you and me sitting here this morning with all of our (laughs) struggles and tiredness? Well, we believe that it is true because God says it and he knows better than we know ourselves. Um, and we believe it must be good because he loves us more than we love ourselves and he does speak for our benefits. So we're going to work through this passage together. We're going to see three things about our sin. They should be on the service sheets you got. And then we're going to see two implications. Uh, and we'll finish by thinking about why, why this is good news. But I hope that we will see it is true and it is good for us to know these things. Let's dive in then. First thing we're going to see about our sin. Firstly, the radical equality of sin. Have a look at verse 9 with me. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Now, um, we're we're at the climax of the argument here. Um, Since chapter 1, verse 18, uh, Romans has been trying to show us that God is angry um, with everyone. 
Uh, and we've considered two types of people. In, in chapter one, we considered uh, irreligious people, people that uh, commit immoral behavior and approve of immoral behavior. We've seen that God's angry at those people. But then in chapter two, he considered a second category, which is religious people, people that have God's laws. And we saw that God's angry with them as well because of religious hypocrisy. And so he's concluding here, verse 9, do we have any advantage? That's speaking about the Jewish church members in Rome, those that grew up with the Bible, with God's laws. Do we have any advantage? No. All people alike are under sin. Now, I think I need to hear that because I, I can read Romans 1-3 and I can still put myself outside of the argument. Do you know what I mean? Okay, there are... Um, immoral people and God's angry at them and then there are religious hypocrites and God's angry at them but then there's me and verse 9 is here to show us no 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 we, we can't do that everyone is under sin no one should consider themselves better than any other above any other person we're all alike under the power of sin now look, of course, this is going to look different in different people's lives. You know, the, 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 the sin in, in, in the life of a homeless alcoholic is going to look different to middle-class me. But fundamentally, we are in the same boat. And we're both made in God's image and with the beauty and dignity of, of, of being made in God's image. But we're both fundamentally flawed under the power of sin. Do you see that there's a radical equality to this that cuts through all different kinds of backgrounds, all alike, are under sin? Now, I think maybe we find this hard because secretly we do think we're better than other people sometimes, don't we? I mean, we'd never say it. We'd never say it out loud. But we do feel superior to other people at times, don't we? I mean, maybe for those of us that have grown up in the West and you see things on the news, like this week in, a, um, in the Sudan, 11 people murdered in the streets in the latest coup. Or, you know, the mess that's going on in Kabul with the IS. Easy to see those things and think, well, our culture wouldn't do that. We're not like that here. Well, I'd never say it. Easy to feel superior. Or maybe that's at a kind of societal level, but even at an individual level, there's lots of things that I tut-tut about in other people's lives, or things I see on TV, or things I pass in the streets. And we may walk past, for example, the homeless alcoholic and think, I'd never say this, but think, well, I wouldn't get into that situation. Now, of course, it's very, very naive. If I'd grown up with the same uh, pressures, the same experiences, the same opportunities. Who to say? Who's to say um, that I'd never do those things? I'm not in a different category of person to anybody else. We're all flawed. Verse 9 wants us, if verse 9 is true, I should never look down on another person as if I'm in a different category. Um, of course, sin is going to look different in our different lives. But at its root, we're under the power of 
sin equally in the same boat. You know, sometimes people think that Christianity is very narrow because it says um, we can only be saved by Christ. It's actually, in a sense, very, very broad because it says we're all in the same boat. There's a radical equality to this. We all need to be saved. Now, if you're not convinced of that, um, in verses kind of 11, 10 to 18, really, Paul gives us a whole bunch of evidence from the Bible to try and support this, this conclusion that we're under the power of sin. And we'll, we'll work through it under these different headings. First of all, the basic orientation of sin. Have a look at verse 10 to 12 with me. As it is written, and he's quoting here from the Bible, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God's. All have turned away, and they've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Now, um, do you notice there that it focuses on the kind of direction of hearts? Do we seek God or do we turn from him? Um, it, if you've ever had the experience of looking after a toddler, um, and you see them wandering uh, away from you, and you call their name, there's a little moment where you can see them thinking, will I turn back? Or do I accelerate in the other direction, turn away? Well, the basic orientation of sin is that we turn away from God and not towards him. Let's deal with some of these tricky phrases, though. Um, So first of all, look at verse 11 with me. Uh, There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Again, how, how can it say that? Surely there are people all over the world who dedicate their lives to seeking God, aren't there? What what, what can he mean here? I think he must mean nobody seeks God on his terms. Nobody seeks God for his sake. There's a lot of people who seek God for our sake, who come to him wanting something or or, or adopt a particular lifestyle because we want to get something for it. A lot of people who come to God like a vending machine. If I poke him in the right ways, I'll get something. But in terms of seeking him on his terms, for his sake, well, no one does that. It's linked to this idea that no one understands. The Bible says that if we really understood God, we would love him above everything always, and love other people more than ourselves at all times, if we really understood him. But we don't. In different ways, each one of us will turn to sin, believe that that's better, more appealing than obeying God at times. No one seeks him on his terms. No one understands him fully. What about the next tricky phrase? Uh, verse, Verse 12, end of verse 12. There's no one who does good. Again, how can that be true? Surely there are good things that people do that God approves of. You know, helping the poor, helping the poor, fighting slavery. Surely there are good things people do that God approves of. Well, think of it this way. Um, someone put it this way to me. Uh, imagine there's a boat, okay, and there are a lot of good things going on on this boat. There's a, a chef. And he creates really good meals for the rest of the crew. And uh, there's a navigator, and he works really hard. He does a great job of navigating the course of the ship. And there are soldiers, and they do a great job always obeying their uh, captain's uh, orders. But you zoom out. You you zoom in, and you see there's lots of different good going on. But you zoom out, and it's a pirate ship, a ship that sails around to murder and pillage and rape. There might be discrete bits of good 
but fundamentally, it's on the wrong side. And there may be discrete bits of good that people do, but fundamentally, we turn from God. We are under the power of sin. See, I don't think verse 12 is saying that uh, in everything, always, people are as bad as they could possibly be. But it is saying that none of us are as good as we should and could be. I mean, even in our best acts, they are tainted by our sin. We never have completely pure 100% motives. There's no one who does good, categorically speaking. And then in verse 13 to 18, he's going to give us uh, more evidence of this, really. Um, we're going to look at it under this, this, this point title, um, the, the pervasive nature of sin. More evidence, verse 13 to 18 of this. He's going to zoom in on our words and then on our conflicts. So first of all, our words. Look at verse 13 with me. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceits. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Um, their throats are open graves. Imagine for a moment an open grave in the Middle East in the heat of the day. There's a corpse in it. It's open. The sun's beating down. And the putrid smell of the rotting flesh begins to um, emanate from the grave. Our throats are like that. So say, it's not talking about BO before you check your breath. <laughs> it's not talking about BO. It's saying our words are windows into our hearts. Our words are windows into our hearts. Our words reveal the decay that's in our hearts. And he points out in verse 13, when our words deceive and uh, when the poison of vipers, that is when they, when they damage other people. Verse 14, when they are bitter, when our words deceive or damage or are bitter, what does that say about our hearts? Imagine for a moment that you and I sat down and we listened to a recording of all of our words over the last month, every single one. <laughs> all the words that deceived, exaggerated, um, the words that damaged other people's feelings or reputations, the words that were bitter resentful, spiteful. What would that show about our hearts? Of course, God doesn't just see the words that we say. He sees the words, the words that we think as well. What would that show about our hearts? And then in verse 15 to 18, he talks, I think, about our conflicts here. So look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Notice it's talking there about feet, kind of the path that we run down, that our ways, the way of peace they do not know. It's talking about moments that we choose to act in ways that destroy peace. It's talking about conflict. Look at your conflicts, it's saying. The moments that you're in conflict... Look, it might be the, uh, uh, the row at home. It might be losing a temper with a child. It might be the chance encounter on the street. Um, I, I, I had a horrible moment last week. I was cycling home, very, very busy, 
man stepped out from behind a lorry um, right in front of me. And I tried to kind of swerve, but brushed his arm and carried on cycling down the road. And my heart was kind of going fast. He followed me down the road, started shouting at me. Um, didn't you see me? Didn't you see me in the road? And I was, um, I said, well, mate, I saw you in the, I saw you standing in the middle of the road. That's what I saw. And then he looked kind of short and I laughed in his face and cycled off. Now, we didn't shed any blood, but I wanted him to feel small in that moment as I cycled off, smiling. What does that show about my heart? Uh, of course, for, uh, you know, we look at our conflicts. What does that show about our hearts? And of course, for some of us, it won't be blowing up. It won't be outward and angry. For some of us, it might be very, very quiet. The slow, simmering resentment or the passive-aggressive coldness. You know, the stony silence can be just as damaging as the raised voice. But we look at our, our conflicts. What does that show? If, we looked at you, if you and I had watched a video... <laughs> The conflicts that we've had in the last couple of months together, what would that show about our hearts? And I wonder if you notice, did you cast your eyes over verse um, uh, 13 onwards? Notice all the different bits of the body that are mentioned. Throats, tongues, lips, mouths, feet, uh, eyes. It's as if it's saying every aspect of us is involved here. Again, it's not saying we're always as terrible as we could be, but I think it is saying everything we do is tainted to a greater or lesser extent by our sinfulness, the pervasive kind of nature of sin. And what does all this evidence show us, our conflicts, our words? What does it all show us? Well, verse 9, that we're under the power of sin. And what, what are we to do with this? Um, Two, two implications. Um, the first is in verse 19, uh, and I think it's, we should be quiet before God. Have a look down at verse 19 with me. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Um, here, Paul's he's anticipating his Jewish audience objecting and saying, that's not us. Those verses you're quoting, they're not about us. They're about people outside of God's people. Um, it's about others. It's a very human tendency, isn't it, to assume that criticism is about other people. I'm very good at that. Um, but notice what Paul says here in verse 19. These things were said to those under the law, those with the Bible, the ancient church, so that every mouth will be silent and the whole word accountable to God. The word accountable there, see it in verse 19, that, 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 um, in, it comes with the sense of under legal process, under legal charge. He's invoking the image here of being in the dock. Um, the moment the Bible says every one of us is going to face where we stand before God and he judges us, and not just our actions, not just our words, but our thoughts. And in that moment, we're going to be quiet before him. There's going to be no excuses. There's going to be no, oh, but if you only knew the pressure I was under. There'll be no, oh, if you only understood my background. There'll be no, oh, I wasn't as bad as the other person. We'll be silent. We all like to think we're better than we are, don't we? But if we, if we understand this rightly, we'll just shut up. And admit that God is right to be angry with us. 
right and just to judge us. And then the final point then really, the final implication in verse 20 um, is, is I think that we're meant to cling to Christ's righteousness. Look at verse 20 with me. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. I think, I think here what Paul's trying to do, he's trying to stop us um, from making a false turn. I think the danger is that his readers and us here today, we hear all this and we agree, and then we make a false turn. We think, okay, I'll try harder. I'll try harder. I'll do better. I'll work harder at obeying God's laws. And he's showing us here, no, 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 that would be a false move. Verse 20, um, the law was given um, to make us aware of sin. Uh, the, the laws, it shows us the rottenness that's in our hearts. God's rules show us the rottenness that are in our hearts, but they can't clean it. They can't get rid of it. Only Christ can do that. So it would be a false move. Please don't respond to this message by resolving to try harder. Um, rather, we should cling to Christ's righteousness. Now, I'm going to cheat here. I'm going to give you a sneak peek of next week. Don't tell my boss. Have a look down at uh, uh, verse 21. Now, apart from the law, righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ to all who believe we can be genuinely forgiven. We can be genuinely right in God's eyes and approach him with freedom and confidence. All this shame, all this guilt taken away, all of God's anger turned away because of what Jesus Christ has done. And, and, and we're being told all of this about our sin, not to drive us to despair, but to drive us to Christ so that we cling to his righteousness, so that we stop trying to uh, uh, fix ourselves, stop trying to blame other things, but cling to Christ's righteousness instead. We're going to hear more about that next week. But I want to finish um, by just thinking briefly, why is this good news, this very negative message? Why is this good news for us? And I think there's two things. I think firstly, this is good for us because it enables us to be honest. It enables us to be honest um, my, my, my son came home from nursery a couple of years ago and uh, walking home um, with him and a friend and his friend turned to, to, to his mum and said, Mummy, am I perfect? <laughs> and she said, mm, <laughs> what makes you say that, darling? And, they, and it turned out that at the end of nursery, the teachers got all the kids to sit in a circle and chant, I am perfect. I am perfect. I am perfect. Over and over. I think they did this semi-regularly. Now, they know that's not true. <laughs> They've been with those kids all morning. And, I mean, like, I can see why they're doing it. Why are they doing this? They're doing it because they want to create a healthy sense of self-esteem in these kids. But it's just not honest. I mean, th imagine that my son grows up thinking that, believing those mantras, and then he hits he, uh, his older years, and he, he finds in himself, like we all do, things of which he's ashamed. How damaging is that going to be? I mean, the generation that's grown up with the influence of the self-esteem movement has 
worse stats for mental health issues than any generation on record. And I know those things are complicated. But maybe we don't help ourselves by lying to ourselves about how good we are, pretending that in here I'm just wonderful. Maybe actually this is good news because it enables me to say, yeah, I'm made in God's image, so of course I have a dignity and a value, but I'm also deeply flawed and broken. That is going to enable me to be patient and generous. This is good for us, I think, because it's honest. It's an an honest view of humanity. Um, But second, I think this is good for us because it creates unity. So again, imagine that my son grows up believing I'm perfect. In here, everything's wonderful. And then he comes into conflict with another person. Whose fault will that conflict be in his mind? Yours. It's got to be yours, because in here, everything's wonderful. That that doesn't create unity. And imagine a a community in which everyone tells themselves that all the time. That is a community at war. Imagine a community where everyone says, do you know what? I'm flawed. That's a community that can begin to get on. To the degree to which at some subconscious level I think I'm better than other people, I will struggle to get on with them. But if I could admit I'm flawed, I need a savior. I need Jesus to save me. I can embrace that. And then I can also approach you with humility when we come into conflict. So I think this is good news because we can be honest and it does create unity rightly understood. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you're willing to speak to us honestly and openly, that you're willing to open the wound so that uh, we might receive your kind of healing balm. Um, Thank you so much that it it is true that we can be righteous in your sight, that we can be forgiven through Christ. And I pray that you would help us to abandon all hope of trying to save ourselves. I pray that we would come to you now and this week empty-handed, not making excuses, um, but clinging to your righteousness in Christ. Amen.